Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Understanding how racial violence affects the AAPI community, that's Asian American and Pacific Islander, is difficult because research about AAPI mental health is scarce. Many Asian Americans say seeing traumatic events happening again and again, like the recent California shootings, heightens a collective fear, not just for themselves, but for their families and communities. The pandemic exacerbated that fear through anti-Asian rhetoric, but it also forced many people to learn about this Asian American reality. Joining us now to share their own experiences is Christine Kim. She's a co-founder of AAPI New Haven and Quan Tran. She's a senior lecturer in ethnicity, race, and migration, acting director of undergraduate studies at Yale University, and a member of the Asian Pacific American Coalition of Connecticut. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Catherine. Thanks for having us, Catherine. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Christine, I want to start with you. You know, When you hear about a hate crime against the Asian American community, what goes through your mind? And how has these experiences impacted the mental health of the AAPI community and yourself? Yeah, thanks for asking that question, Catherine. Um, it's a question that I tried not to think about for a long time. I think hearing any instance of violence brings just paralyzing fear um, for not just myself, but my loved ones um, who may look or appear Asian um, and and those more widely across the globe in the community, because unfortunately it's not just violence that's happening just in the United States. Um, yeah, I think it brings fear where every time you go outside, you just never know what's going to happen. Um, you flinch at every single stranger approaching you. Um, you are afraid to go about, you know, just doing everyday normal things that people should be feeling safe to do, like going to the grocery store, going to school, um, going to work. Um, you know, enjoying a, a walk outside. And so it, it affects so much of your everyday existence and feeling of safety. And you're just on high alert and scared, um, again, not just for your own self and body, but to those that you love so much because you just never know um, what is around the corner. And it, it, it's not... Um, a way that anyone would should or want to live. So um, I know it's it, it spreads wide through the community because it, it doesn't make sense. I think a lot of the violence and the reason for it doesn't make sense. Who is targeted um, doesn't make sense because it's based on, you know, a, a lack of reality. Um, so, yeah, it's 
it's it's brought you know nightmares and a lot of anxiety to so many of us and um to constantly hear it in the news again and again and knowing that many many instances and cases aren't reported is even more frightening and um yeah and i mean I, I think this happened before the pandemic and, you know, Quan and others can talk to it more, but it's happened throughout U.S. history. But this latest um, uptick and surge in anti-Asian violence has really just shaken so much in the community because we thought we were doing our best and working and, and part of this starting to be part of the fabric of this nation and the society. But at, at, at certain points, it's it's very apparent that we we are not, and it's shocking and really just heartbreaking. I think a lot of people would resonate with that shock and that fear. I certainly do, and I'm glad that you mentioned this is not something that's new. It's not pandemic-specific, uh, but it is very much exacerbated by the last couple of years. So I want to ask Quan, do you feel similar? Do you feel like you're on guard a lot because of what's been going on? And is there a trauma associated with having to see or hear these events happening again and again? Thanks for that question, Catherine. Yeah, I do share a similar sentiment um, as Christine in the sense that, right, when you see violence or you hear of violence and you consciously know that your sense of identity is, is one of the reasons that could put you as a target, um, it's a very unsettling feeling. And I will be honest that up until COVID, um, I've kind of navigated my life uh, very normally. I never had to feel threatened in, in any way or in the kind of spaces that I, I um, frequented in. But when the pandemic happened, um, the kind of political rhetoric, the inflammatory rhetoric, that isolated and pinpointed out the blame um, on Asian American bodies, suddenly I felt so targeted. Um, even, you know, I walk and alone that sense of walking in the woods, which used to bring me a lot of joy, suddenly became a source of fear, right? Thinking about how, uh, and for me, the trauma isn't just the immediate trauma, but I think a secondary trauma um, because it forces us to have a, re, um, a reevaluation of who we are in relationship to our environments and, right, and our uh, communities. And I would say too that um, that sense of trauma for those of us who have families, um, you know, siblings, children, parents, grandparents, is multifold. Um, because how our senses, right, our, our reaction to a moment of rupture like that is how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our people? And sometimes it's very a sense of helplessness as well because they're so far away. Structurally, you know, there isn't anything that could comfort us, right? Um, we rely on our friends, our neighbors to, to kind of help us um, nurse ourselves through those moments. Um, but for me, fear is only one things that can come out of anti-Asian hate, because the other side of it is that how do we resist that fear? How do we start to pick ourselves up and let that and not let that paralyze us? Right. And I'm, I'm really interested in, in that question. And I'd love to um, have further conversation about that. 
I look forward to that, too, because I think that's a question that many of us, not just within the AAPI community, but just our friends and neighbors are also asking that question. And I will say, you know, when you when you mentioned that you never really you lived your life fairly, you know, normally before the pandemic and afterwards, it really changes or change things. I feel very similar as well. I never felt I needed to have a heightened sense of you know security for myself or my family until the pandemic. So I really that really resonate with resonated with me. Thank you so much for sharing that, Quan. And I want to um, ask uh, Christine. You know, we're only touching the very tip of the iceberg, but can you talk about the complex trauma that exists? in the Asian American community. There seems to be a lot of intergenerational trauma and the collective trauma that is often not talked about. Yeah, um, trauma is a word that I wouldn't even admit to myself until a couple of years ago. And I had to do it because of my own personal health crisis. Um, Because I think I was taught and I wanted to believe so much that I could endure anything that happened to me in my family and have a narrative that was about overcoming anything that happened. I mean, in my own family journey, just in one or two generations, you know, fleeing their homelands, um, which is now formerly North Korea and enduring the Korean War, um, afterwards the military dictatorship, having to leave their country because of economic, you know, socioeconomic reasons, and enduring prejudice in this country did a a huge number of, I think, what would be legitimately traumatic experiences. But at least the stories that we try to tell ourselves in our family is like, no, we overcame, we worked from nothing and brought ourselves up and look how, how, how well we did. But, and part of that narrative and triumphant story, which is so aspirational and is, is a mode of survival, I think, is also then burying deep inside a lot of the scars and pain um, and just bearing all of that. Um, and, you know, one thing I realized with my own personal health is that a lot of the trauma doesn't necessarily go away just because you choose not to admit it, that you don't talk about it, which unfortunately a lot of our elders um, had, had, had learned to do and were taught to do and taught us to do was not talk about the bad times, because to relive them is traumatic. And a lot of times there's not a good outlet in which to talk about it or uh, without bringing on shame onto yourself or blaming yourself, because that's something that trauma can do. You blame yourself for what happened. Um, instead is, is to forget about it. But, you know, some of the new science has shown that, you know, like um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, book the body keeps the score is that trauma laces itself and can lace itself into your body and your genetics and even you know come back a couple generations later um and change the health and and um epigenetics of your of, of your grandchildren so trauma um goes back a long way and i think one way that we uh, m- many members in the api community um, especially generations, our, our first generation immigrants and refugees have endured it is to not talk about it and to swallow that bitter, that bitterness. Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't go away. And we're seeing a lot of the after effects of it. 
Um, again, I'm not a expert in an intergenerational trauma, and there are may many people and in, more increasingly in our community who are telling their own stories and narratives and are experts in this. And there are many people who can help. But um, unfortunately, I didn't find it for myself until really recently um, in finding um, the complex trauma in my own life and my parents' life. And it's it's a it's um for me it's been liberating to admit that trauma has happened and does happen um even though i i learned not to and i i didn't ever want to admit it um but it's been freeing because it, it it's it's um it tells a story of why um of what happened to us what happened to me and there's an even a book by oprah winfrey um, that just came out about this, like what happened to you? And it's really about being curious about the story of how we got here. And I think about sharing that story within our own families to ourselves and to our communities brings on huge um, empathy, compassion, and then healing. And so that's something that I'm really hoping for our community. And I think we're just starting. Um, there's an also another amazing book so I've been reading a lot through this because it's just really been helped me personally so much. What my bones knew know about um, by Stephanie Fu, who's um, a, a, a podcast producer, um, Malaysian American, and she writes a lot about complex trauma for her, herself and her own family as well, and how that shows upon um, the API community. So this is something that I think this is just the beginning of what we should be talking about and need to be talking about. Well, we're uh, big readers on this show. So thank you so much for adding more to our black hole of a to be read list. And uh, I, I love this idea of curiosity can take you to the path of healing. And I'm really glad to hear that you have found that support. And I hope others will, too. And you, know, you talking about that this intergenerational trauma and the, this idea of not wanting to talk about the bad things is very universal. And uh, we all love a good story about strength, but I, I resonate that you said it's, it can be hard and it's, it's a huge pressure for the next generation. So can you talk a little bit, a bit about that pressure where um, one person feels the need to belong to two different communities at once while keeping the cultural ties um, while being integrated into U.S. culture. That's a lot going on for any one person. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's a lot of immigrant stories, um, especially of this, the 1.5 second, third generations that that tried to exist with their ancestors, their families, culture of where they came from, and also finding a life here and knowing that the values that the, um, you know, so, so much of the thinking and what's acceptable is, is completely different. Um, I mean, sorry to throw another book out there, but um, Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree talks about families that are horizontal or vertical, meaning vertical, meaning that you have a similar experience just as your parents and your grandparents did. Um, he's talking more about, I mean, he talks about things like um, being on the this the autistic spectrum or, 
you know, uh, deafness and in, in differences in families. But I think this really resonates culturally as well, where our experience is horizontal, where the way I have gone through, you know, taking my my classes at school are complete and doing homework is completely different from how my parents view it or, um, you know, social mores. And so, yeah, I think that is just um, an experience that we navigate, but it, 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 there is such, so there's such a loss between the generations about what, how we can connect. um, And that's a huge loss. And speaking of connection, I want to ask Juan real quick. We have a couple of minutes left here. Um, what are some of the ramifications of not having a connection to family backstory and roots? Because I think sometimes we assume that we all know our backstories and our roots, but sometimes that's not the case. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes when, when we don't have those connections, it's a part of our identity that we don't get to build on, right? Um, and knowing the backstory is actually a, a source of strength. Um, so I think a lot about what Christine's saying, um, that because we have lost some of that connections due to various right um, issues like traumas, language barriers, um, when we feel lost, we don't know where to tether ourselves, where to anchor ourselves. Um, and the project of trying to regain that is something that is really um, revelatory um, and asking us too about like, who are we, but where did we come from and where are we going, right? That becomes a set of toolkits for us to then deal with the things that life and society throw at us. Um, so the question becomes, how do we create channels uh, for that reconnection to to begin to mend? Um, and that's important work. Um, I, th- I think we one of the things that I realized um, emerging out of this COVID uh, era and this anti-Asian hate is that it actually create also a space for us to have more conversations within our community and within our family, right? Um, because it, and, and that comes out of a, a place of care and that comes from a place of curiosity and the recognition that without knowing what has happened before us, we actually don't know how well to respond to the current condition. Um, and in, in that kind of work, we're just not doing it for ourselves, but we're also doing it for the next generation, right? So for, so for me, the trauma is intergenerational but so is the act of recovering from it, right? And it is collective work and it's heart and heart and hurt and heart work, right? Yeah. Right. And Kwan, I, I love um, the where are we going and looking forward and, and talking about the connection that we may have lost, but that we can also heal through. Um, at, at least... It, for myself, I mean, two, I mean, it was almost two years ago, you know, hearing about anti-Asian violence constantly in the news. Um, you know, I remember being in our local Costco and seeing people move their carts away from me (laughs) at the beginning of pandemic. And I, and talking to some business owners, um, Asian restaurant business owners and saying, oh, people aren't coming in already because of this, this coronavirus thing in China. And this was already like in January, February, 2020. And just knowing, fearing that 
things were taking a downturn. And I remember even trying to speak English more clearly because maybe that would protect me or, um, or, or just not, you know, not go outside. And I was so paralyzed with fear. Like so much I had, my jaw was clenched. I couldn't sleep. I was, I was just terrified. And, um, the only way out of it, I think was, um, when called about, ask, I was asked who were the Asian leaders in New Haven, who are the groups that we can support? And at that point, I was like, well, there's, you know, this Chinese church here, there's this place and this person, but there's no group. And I think the only thing that broke me personally out of the fear was to take a leap of courage and connect with other people. I'm someone who you know, didn't really, um, wasn't really, a, wasn't an Asian American activist at all before I, to be honest, I tried to, you know, do my best and stay, keep my head down low and just, you know, work hard and, you know, assume that, you know, I was going to be safe and okay. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, we started API New Haven and started reaching out and meeting amazing leaders like Quan Tran and Mike Yu um, around the state of Connecticut, that all of the fear started to not melt away, but it had less of a power. And I think by creating community and reaching out and knowing that we are not alone, that what we're going through is not alone and that we don't have to be alone, that we can work together, even though our languages may be different because APIs, it's such a diverse community. Um, you know, uh, when we've immigrated, the, our languages, what we eat, you know, everything. Um, it It's the connection that really has op opened up um, each other, our, our, our healing, our healing path to each other. So that's one part of hope and one part of um, light that I see from this very harsh time is that we have responded by reaching out and connecting and building this beautiful community, um, even in Connecticut, where you don't think there are many API, but actually, you know, it's it's all across the state and building our, our networks and our support for each other has been a really a beautiful and um, a light that's come out of this time. Well, what you said was just really beautiful, too, and just further emphasizes the importance of having this conversation. Uh, you've been hearing from Christine Kim, who is a co-founder of AAPI New Haven and Quan Tran. She's a senior lecturer at Yale University, and they will both be staying with us. Coming up next, we'll be talking with Mike Kao. He led the statewide movement I Am Not a Virus in 2020, giving Asian Americans an opportunity to tell their story and humanizing those experiences. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about the Asian American reality of processing collective fear and finding ways to navigate through those very complex emotions. Joining us now to help us better understand those emotions is Mike Kao, who is the founder of the national movement, I Am Not a Virus. He also led the effort that got a legislative bill passed in 2021 to include AAPI history in Connecticut public schools. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Catherine, for having me. Also with us is Christine Kim, who is the co-founder of AAPI New Haven, and Quan Tran. She's a senior lecturer at Yale University and a member of the Asian Pacific American Coalition of Connecticut. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Mike, I want to start with you. Um, based on a study in the Journal of Interpersonal Violence, one-third of Asian respondents report bias victimization during the pandemic, and more than half of Asian respondents report that they know someone who has been victimized. That's a huge a really big part of the population that's been a victim to this, and it can be re-traumatizing and increase everyday stress like both Quan and Christine have shared earlier. I just want to ask, do you feel like you're on guard a lot because of it? I am on guard a lot. You know, I am raising two young Asian American boys. I am the children of refugees whose parents worked double chef to raise four kids without having the opportunity to process their own trauma from the killing fields. And so when this began to happen, I was worried for them. I was worried for my partner. Um, You know, you hear stories nationally, but these stories were happening here at home too. And I I think about when we did the supporter series, I think about a, a firefighter that came in in March of 2020 right before the pandemic really started. And she shares a story about how she was chased through a um, supermarket in um, a town close by to where I live, about 15 minutes away. And she was blamed for having COVID-19 or for starting COVID. And no one did anything. And this woman was followed for about 15 minutes inside the store. You know, I can't... I can't imagine that loneliness in those 15 minutes, but I knew that I did not want the people I love and my community to ever feel that way. 
And I think a lot of people assume that what you just described and these crimes that we've been talking about really just started existing during the pandemic. But the history of violence against Asian Americans go way back. Can you talk about what you know about that and what did that look like before the pandemic? I think the wave of violence happens in cycles for Asian Americans. You know, um, I was speaking to my colleague at the Connecticut Historical Society, Karen Lee Miller, and she was sharing with me headlines from the 1912s of fear of these Chinese tongs, gangsters coming to places like Manchester and Hartford. I think about 1987, where a group of students at UConn, Asian American, are on their way to a formal and are attacked for being Asian American. You know, I think about the anti-refugee sentiments where we are attacked for taking jobs. And now we're attacked for having diseases, you know. And when, when I think about this violence, I think about how invisible it all feels. Especially if I was an Asian American woman where they have been targeted for their gender and their race. And how do you separate the two when both of them make them who they are. You know, I I remember growing up and my mother would tell me where not to go, but she didn't have the language to describe racism, but she told me it was dangerous there, you know? Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure that resonates with many of the AAPI community members who might be listening today. I do want to take a moment to take a call from Michelle in Southington, who would also like to share her story. Michelle? What would you like Hi. to share? Hi. Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for this um, discussion. It's very timely, I think. Um, I guess just to add on to what has just been said, um, I think as a second generation you know, Korean American, I've grown up with an awareness of um, of our, my identity and, and never really being able to be considered American, despite the fact that Asian Americans, East Asian Americans, Southeast Asian Americans have been in this country almost longer sometimes than other um, European minority groups. Um, but whenever there is some kind of um, social, economical, um, you know, weaknesses within the greater sort of national conversation, Asians are scapegoated and we are used as leverage to um, to drum up war machines, to to um, implement you know really prejudiced um, educational policies, economic policies, and now with this whole <laughs> spy balloon incident, I mean, when is this going to end? I really you know as soon as we started getting news from um, Wuhan that there was this virus. Um, I knew. I knew that the, the, the hate and the vitriol was going to um, spread into the U.S. and that our community would be under attack. And as the pandemic itself is starting to wind down officially, um, I, now there's new, uh, you know, um, just uh, vitriol against China. And, and when will this country accept us as being American and not as a foreign um, element that can be used and disposed of um, whenever it seems convenient. Thank you. 
want to thank Michelle so much for calling in and sharing your story. And Mike, you are very involved with policymaking and education and, and with the story you just shared right before we took Michelle's call. Can you respond to what she's saying? Um, is there invalidation of experiences and gaps in awareness that causes this experience? Thank you for that question. You know, with um, with the bill, it was a group effort. It was with Christine, Kwan, Jason Chang, Kameed. It was many of us, JHD. Um, and when I think about the lack of education, in 2020, in the wake of anti-Asian hate and anti-Black violence, a headline came out from a Cambodian-American scholar, um, Sokhthavi Swai from New York. And it was a headline from the New York Times in May of 1978, where Black Americans urge a mission for the Indo-Chinese refugees when 55% of Americans could not see us belonging in this country. You know, and I think about that and how it took 35 years for me to know that my history was linked to a larger context of American history. I think about the railroad workers too and the disposable bodies that built up the transcontinental railroad system. These people that had lives, but their stories were never recorded, you know? And I think this is, I think this is why our stories and our histories matter. It gives us a place to anchor ourselves into, to see ourselves as belonging for others to our neighbors to understand that we have the shared fate because we had a shared history. And that visibility that we, that we live under brings so much trauma and loneliness and self-hatred that it becomes hard to advocate for ourselves. And until, you know, others understand these histories, I think we are going to perpetuate the same hurts and the same aggression and be on the receiving end again and again. I think with everything that's been happening, one of the silver linings, at least from what I can see, is we the conversations are happening that wasn't happening before. And I want to pose this question to Quan, you know, also in response to Michelle's call and her very poignant question on when is this going to end? You know, you're in classrooms, you're in a campus space where you're lecturing and talking about ethnicity, race, and migration. You know, what are your thoughts about what Michelle said? Um, yeah, I actually would, I love to, to thank Michelle in person because I think she's hitting the nail on the head in how we, we ought to be thinking about anti-Asian hate, right? Um, I think the focus has often been on these kind of interpersonal aggression and violence. But for me, anti-Asian hate encompasses everything. And we have to think of that in these interlocking systems, right? Um, the, 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 the law contributes to some of this, um, the popular discourse, and sometimes right, the ways in which the media um, have historically been reporting these stories um, contribute to some of this. Uh, thinking about education and the woefully lack of education in our country about the histories of various minority groups um, is a contribution to this, right? So to make this stop, the path forward is to make all kinds of system respond to anti-Asian hate and not just focus um, on the story of individual violence, which is important, 
But if we only look at it from that to, from that angle, you know, what we're able to change um, isn't going to be as effective. Um, and I think a lot about that because in the classroom, right, we talk about how do these relationships, how do these things relate to each other? So um, we have, right, a kind of political system um, in place, but that doesn't serve um, Asian American um, in, and other minority groups um, in the way that it should. And so by having more representation in those kinds of policymaking spaces, it's going to change the, the playing field a little bit. Um, and, you know, having um, scholars, having uh, legal um, experts, having right people who work in every corners of our society pitching in is a way to think about how do we make this stop or how do we prevent or how do we have a systems of response as we anticipate the next wave of assault. We've got about a minute left, but I also want to ask Christine if you would like to respond to what Michelle said as well. Yeah, thank you, Michelle, so much. I think fear is something that breeds hate, breeds isolation. And at least personally, I found that to connect, to learn that we're not alone is the first way to break down fear. And what Mike and Quan and Make Us Visible in Connecticut has done to promote API history, to not just teach our history to uh, you know, all, all students in our state, but to, to ourselves, because we don't, a lot of us don't even know our history in this country ourselves. And that is not just what's happened in, in, since COVID started, but it's been a long history. And, you know, this made me realize how blind I was to not just what we've endured, you know, e more Eastern, Southeast Asian looking people, but previous to like 9-11, a lot of our Southeast, South Asian and Arab, Arab brothers and sisters were targeted. And at that point, we didn't support as much as we should have because we were scared too and and reaching even more broadly to the black and brown communities that have endured a lot of prejudice and racism and i think that by telling our by telling each other our stories and our own stories and each other's stories is one way um and, and beyond the policies i think is what at least in api new haven what we've tried to do is having telling our stories to each other um, to the broader public, because that's just a beginning, because that has been so missing. Kathy Park Hong, um, the amazing um, poet who actually spoke at the Connecticut Forum last year, said there that our future is a battle of stories. And we need to be telling our stories and not afraid to tell them in any way to each other, to our children, to our friends, so that we are more humanized and that, you know, lies and um and hate and fear cannot be spread. So thank you, um, Michelle, for seeing that because these are all lies and we need to speak up. And I'm so glad that Catherine, um, you and producers and Quan and Mike are all here so that we could tell our stories and tell the stories of API in Connecticut as well. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for that. And it's our privilege to have this conversation. And I just want to Remind people that you have been listening to Christine Kim, who is the co-founder of AAPI New Haven, and Mike Kao, who is one of the founders of the national movement I Am Not a Virus, and Quan Tran, who is a senior lecturer at Yale University. Coming up next, we will continue this conversation with all three guests to talk about how this all impacts young Asian Americans and the need to increase AAPI history in our classrooms. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're jumping right back with Mike Kao, who is the founder of the national movement I Am Not a Virus, and Christine Kim, who is a co-founder of AAPI New Haven, and Quan Tram, who's a senior lecturer at Yale University, to talk about how experiencing trauma over and over again impacts young Asian Americans. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Quan, Growing up in a time where hearing or witnessing violence against this community has become very prominent and all over the news, as we've been talking about earlier, how do you think this impacts on young Asian Americans? Um, thanks for the question, uh, Catherine. Uh, I think it impacts young Ameri- Asian Americans in, in different ways and also depending on right what age group they're in. Um, so when I think young, I think of uh, those who are um, in my generation, um, as we were kind of in, you know, our 30s, 40s, um, and for us, the impact is is multifold, right? Because we are now many of us have have a kind of the sandwich generation where we have our parents um, and then our young children, and so for us, what does it mean to to extend our protection um, to both of those groups? Um, young, I also think of the college age students who, who are in my classrooms, right, uh, and their peers, um, as they are coming of age in the sense of, of becoming professionals um, as they leave the, the, the seats of the university. And then young as in, right, the K through 12 population among whom include um, my children. And so in each of these level of youth, I would say, um, there is a, a slightly different kind of need, but collectively it is about how do we fortify our community so that we see each other vertically, um, but also horizontally. And the, the way in which, again, like trauma um, is, is a powerful emotion, um, but it's also right, uh, a source of inspiration to, to leave it. Um, if we can, and, and as, as we should in some way, and to deal with it. Um, so what are then the needs? What are then the spaces that we can create so that we could begin to heal from these things? And, and Christine and Mike um, have talked beautifully about right, sharing stories, the, the power of storytelling, the, the power of owning and naming our narratives, um, the power of, of, of understanding um, where we come from um, and how do we lean on each other. Um, so the impact uh, is fear, yes, um, but um, young people are also, right, I want my children's childhood to not be defined by this fear. Um, I want them to be able to say that, you know, there are people in my community who will b- build for me this space um, and that I too will benefit from it and that I will take that as a, an inheritance, um, but I don't have to be defined by it. I love the way you broke down the young generation, young population, because we are all a part of that. And and Mike, you shared earlier that you're raising two young American boys, Asian American boys. Can you respond to this? You know, what do you think? How do you think this is all going to impact them and on young Asian Americans in general? I think for young Asian Americans, it's finding that community space. Um, the I'm Not Virus campaign was created with myself and a bunch of people much younger than me in high school and college, you know, but there was a space where we saw each other across generations. And when I think about my two boys, I think about the support systems they have, the places of joy that they can see. And um, 
I remember we took them to um, Kwan's temple for the Tet celebration. And my children love seeing Kwan's kids. And that moment of seeing these kids that are a little bit older than them, accept them, play with them. I think that brings my son a sense of joy when he enters a an Asian American space, a Vietnamese space, even though we're Cambodian American and Hmong. Um, and I think about the teachers' roles in this. I've been incredibly lucky to have wonderful teachers for my kids. I remember in pre-K, my it was over Zoom. It was during the pandemic, and I was worried for my son for many reasons. And I've shared this um, this fear with his teacher, and she read Bim Bim Bop. And in this book, they are making Bim Bim Bop, which he has had before. But what strikes him is the rice cooker. When he sees the rice cooker, he goes off mute and he starts laughing and squealing. He goes, I have one too, and I help my mom make rice. And then he shares the sound that our rice cooker makes. And, um, you know, his teacher, without missing a beat, ended up starting a conversation with the rest of the class. If they, do, if they too help their moms or dads or cook something, their parents cook. And um, I just thought it was a wonderful moment where my child was seen. And when I explained this to my his his kindergarten teacher, his kindergarten teacher, she said to me, she said, um, you know, Mike, I don't want to do the wrong thing. But um, if I do, could you just let me know? And I just thought that opened up this wonderful possibility of partnership. And it made it easy for me to email his teacher when he wanted to bring Cambodian sausages to school. Because from my experience, I was made fun of for bringing my foods to school. And I was able to call her and email her. And I was able to have a talk with my son that someone might say something mean about his food, but it's just because they haven't tried it yet. You know? And I remember distinctly, this is over a year ago, and he comes home and he goes, Daddy, no one said anything bad about my food. And I just wanted to hug him and hold him. You know? I do. I mean, I think it all comes back to food. And and I think that is such a, a small thing, but what a big thing, right? For your son, for yourself, and for everyone, and hopefully for everyone who's listening. And I don't want to make light of this, but I do love a rice cooker. And it took me a long time to realize that you can actually make rice on the stovetop and not having a rice cooker. So I just want to put that out there. Um, and Mike, you created this amazing community, this amazing space for people to come to and have these conversations. And Quan, you yourself are doing the same thing. I want to ask Christine, you know, you you are co-founder of API New Haven. Did you see allyship before that creation? And do you want to see more allyship? What does that look like? Um, I I think I think at least we've, I feel very blessed to be in New Haven because it is an amazing town where allies abound. And I think when we first had our our rally um, to speak for stopping anti-Asian hate, it was amazing who did come out um, to support us. It was friends and neighbors, those that I reached out to because I, I, I never really, you know, talked about my Asian American identity or my experience with them. But when asked, they all came out and supported. And we had, you know, the Anti-Defamation League, um, you know, heads of, of black churches and all so much support from the community and allyship. Um, but I think one thing that we realized when trying to start this is that before we start making alliances and, you know, political statements and policy 
coalitions, et cetera. One thing that we really need to do is understand each other because even within the API community, there's so much difference politically, socioeconomically, language wise, um, you know, and in music and in so many different ways. And that's something that we also need to, I, I believe, um, you know, re reconcile or at least open that space and discussion amongst ourselves um, before we, you know, present ourselves as allies, because um, I think I personally do have allyship and there is a lot of allyship with other organizations and progressive movements, but there are also API who are, you know, allies in the conservative movements and to recognize that and recognize that diversity in our community. And, and, um, and I think work it, work it out amongst ourselves. I think that's the step that we've taken. Although I think allyship, like, just, like I said, like before realizing how much of our, our experience and struggle is, is mirrored in so many other groups that have been fighting this fight for a long time and to learn and connect with them and not just isolate and think that we're going to be safer if we do things differently, because apparently we're not going to be safe. So. Well, I want to thank you for that. And I know there's a lot of work to be done, but this is just the start of the conversation and we will have many more to come. That's for sure. Um, you've been listening to Chris Christine Kim, who is a co-founder of API New Haven, and Mike Keo, who is one of the founders of the national movement I Am Not a Virus, and Quan Tran. She's a senior lecturer in ethnicity, race, and migration at Yale University. I want to thank all three of you for spending so much time with us today and helping us better understand the API community and the work that needs to be done. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>